As I mentioned earlier, we're in a series called Sunday School Revisited. And uh, this is just a fun series for us at Encounter. We did it last summer, different stories back then. Uh, and now again, this summer. So it's almost like becoming a tradition. Uh, Sunday School Revisited is about like taking these stories, uh, Bob the Tomato, Junior the Asparagus, and uh, Larry the Cucumber, and uh, Looking at these stories, not just as second, third, fourth graders, but now opening up these same stories to see what wisdom, what word there is for us now as 20, 30, 40 year olds, adults, um, looking at these stories going, all right, I remember it told one way. Is there some truth there for now, uh, me in an entirely different stage of life? Spoiler alert, um, I think there is. (laughs) I think every time we open up this word, there's something here for us. That message, that same message rings true, although we might uh, celebrate it or experience it in a different different light, depending on experience. A quick example of this. Last week, we learned uh, is Jacob. Uh, rock star in the faith. Uh, so much of the Bible references him. If you need a quick example, he was renamed Israel. Uh, You've probably heard of Israel. <laughs> it like, still exists today, right? It traces their roots all the way back to this one family, Jacob, Israel, and the Israelites. Um, I said rock star in the faith. Uh, you could say uh, he, that much of the biblical story is about him. Um, he is not without fault here. He's actually duped into marrying the wrong woman, Leah, instead of Rachel. Uh, We took a look at this story, not only from Jacob's perspective, but what was it like walking in Leah's shoes? What was it like being the the one uh, unloved? What was it like spending seven years working for your dad, knowing that the only reason why you're still in the family is because your husband would much rather be with someone else? We don't have to ask, what was it like? The biblical story fills it out, and we checked that out last week. As Leah grows through this experience and wrestles with her own sense of being rejected, unloved. And we said at the end of the story, she she finds this sense of God's picture, finds this sense of God's redemption in her. The very, very end of the story, her great, 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 great grandson is Jesus Christ. And he not only loves her, He loves her to death. And what better story is there for your little ones learning these stories uh, out in uh, elementary and pre-K, tots when they get there? What better message is there than when you are feeling rejected, you're loved, even to the point of Jesus dying for you. Although opening up the story as adults, it leads us into a few areas that are a little bit more complicated than what we might like. For example, that same family uh, grows, and not only do we drop in on them later, and not only is there uh, not like hundreds or even thousands, but we drop in them in the next book of Exodus, and there's hundreds of thousands of them. They've made their way to Egypt, long story, perhaps another time, living on the east of this country. And uh, the Egyptians kind of scratch their heads and go, if we're attacked, I mean, if some nation has a bone to pick with us and they attack us from the east, how do we know that, that the Israelites are going to fight with us instead of against us? 
And so they proceed on this um, systematic subjugation, you could say, this systematic slavery of trapping the Israelites into this life of slavery. And just a picture that their time is not their own, their land is not their own, their house is not their own, their meals are not their own. And friends, probably worst of all, their children are not their own. In the first chapter of Exodus, where I think our story really begins, in Exodus chapter 1, the pharaoh, the head guy in the land, issues a command because as a way of population control over these people, he said, every baby boy who is born to these people, throw into the river. Every baby boy murdered. Exodus chapter 2, one is spared. He's put in the river, except he's put in a little boat sent up the river. He's found by the princess in the reeds. And here we start to see these little clues being dropped that we can hang on to. Moses, his name is, is found in the reeds. He grows up a foot in both camps, one in the Egyptian world, one in the Israelite world. Um, Years later, he's now um, standing in front of this bush that is burning and doesn't, like, burn out. And in that, a voice of God comes to him and says, you're going to be the one to lead these people out of slavery. Like, I have chosen you (laughs) to lead them out. Um, Interesting fact, again, another breadcrumb on the trail. God tells Moses... Lead these people out of slavery. When when, uh, Moses takes that message to Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh, my people would like a three-day break to go out into the wilderness, sacrifice, implying we'll be right back. Interesting little switch there. Um, Nevertheless, Pharaoh doesn't want to grant even that three-day break and says, "Uh, no way, not happening. Um, we are led into these ten plagues. There's locusts, there's gnats, there's blood, there's cows dropping dead. I mean, ten plagues later over Egypt, and Pharaoh now says, just get out. Take whatever you want. Leave. I just don't want to see you anymore. So Moses leads the people out of Israel. Breadcrumb along the trail. He doesn't say we're not going to come back. The implication that Moses gives Pharaoh is we're going to do just what I ask for. We're going to go out into the wilderness. We're going to sacrifice, and then we're going to come back. That's kind of what Pharaoh's got in the back of his mind. Keep that. God had other plans. We pick it up in Exodus chapter 14. The people had a choice. They leave. Everybody leaves the same way. They go up the sea, up the, where the rivers are. It's green. It's lush. It's fertile. Things grow. Uh, along the highway, you could say there's gas stations, there's rest stops, there's Applebee's, right? There's a good way to go and a less good way to go. <laughs> Breadcrumb along the trail, God leads them, not along that fertile way with all the exits, but he leads them along into the desert. Worse yet, he leads them right into this massive body of water. Some people call it the Red Sea. Lately, uh, scholars have been saying, actually, it could sort of like, be like the Reed Sea or the Sea of Reeds. Think marshy, swampland. Um, doesn't really change the story that much, but breadcrumb, keep it. 
Exodus chapter 14. We're going to start off verse 1, read a few verses. Then the Lord, it's on the screen in the flow sheet. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi Herioth, between Migdol and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites have wandered around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, and he'll pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this when the so the Israelites did this when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Uh, note on the story. Remember, he was under the impression they're going out to the wilderness, sacrifice. They'll be back in a few days. They leave. He's starting to get the idea. Hey, I don't think these people are coming back. He sees what they've done next to the sea. This is an opportunity. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. I love this next line. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots in Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, uh, who were marching out boldly, like not coming back. The Egyptians... All Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped near the sea near Pi Herioth, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let, this, let us serve the Egyptians. It would, be, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid, stand firm, and you'll see the deliverance of the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I want to break the story right there and just make sure that we're all tracking with what happened. The people have taken what appears to be a wrong turn, not along the, the fertile green highway with all the exits. They have turned by the way of the desert. And if that wasn't bad enough, they've turned in and have been um, headed right towards this massive body of water of which there's no escape. They come to the body of water and they're looking forward and there's just sea. They're looking behind and even worse. The Egyptians, the chariots are, are, are pounding after them as fast as they can, ready. And when they meet him, when they meet up with them, it's not going to be pretty. The people know this and they say, if you let us out here to die. And they've become somewhat, somewhat reflective. As a side note in this, uh, I'm going somewhere, but I had a 19, 
Well, okay, it doesn't matter what year it was. It was back when Plymouth made cars, and they actually made a a car named uh, the Plymouth Neon. And I had one. At the time, Chris and I were just starting out. We didn't have a a carport or a garage, so the car sat outside in the sun and just baked all summer long. And uh, the rearview mirror that I had in that car uh, would get so hot that like, the adhesive on the back w- would just wear out. And once it happens once or twice, <laughs> it happened like every week. And so I'm embarrassed to say, get in the, the car, and the rearview mirror would be down either on the dash or sometimes worse. Like the first time it bounced off the dash, bounced along on the ground, and it fell underneath the passenger side seat. What's embarrassing about this is that I drove about five or ten miles before realizing something seems off here. <laughs> Found the rearview mirror. I guess you could say now I have, uh, I have an extra, but um, glued it back on. And for that summer and for every summer until I sold the car, I'm constantly gluing this mirror back up share this story because you know it strikes me that in a car driving down the road there's two main uh, areas to look when you're looking forward especially you've got the windshield looking ahead and you've got the rear view mirror looking behind think about what this means for the israelites just for a second coming out of egypt They've got the windshield looking ahead. The future is uncertain at best. There's a sea in front of them. I mean, this is not going to go well. And they take this opportunity to become somewhat reflective, and they look in the mirror, and they can, they can see or at least remember what lies behind them. Exodus... Um, Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way up to this story. Let us know what they were looking at in the mirror. They're looking at being slaves. We already hit it already. They're looking at, in the rearview mirror, a time when a command came down from the top that says, throw every boy in the river. They're looking at the point of being literally worked to death. And if not death, then the closest thing to it. Friends, this is what they're looking at in that rear view mirror. And they're going, Moses, even that was better than the windshield looking ahead. They're free for now. But at least in their own minds, they're still Slaves, if not to the Egyptians, chasing after them at a rapid pace. In their minds, they are slaves to the idea of being slaves in Egypt. They, they can't see themselves apart from this. A preacher, a friend of mine, uh, sharing on this story, uh, just makes an observation of a, of a, a noted um, psychologist slash cognitive researcher. And and this uh, researcher says, you know, it's interesting that in modern day issues of what you and I might experience as uh, slavery, and he goes, you could imagine this, uh, like slavery or addiction to drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. And he goes, it's interesting to note 
that the psychological responses uh, that are responsible for um, addiction um, to like alcohol or drugs, for example, is the same psychological response mechanism that every single human being has regards to something. We just don't know what it is. For some people, you know, it's like this addiction to a certain lifestyle to maintain. And it's like, I am here. And what keeps me up at night is the fear that I might be brought down a couple rungs. That's addiction. That's slavery in the modern time. Same psychological uh, responses uh, are going out, triggering in in that person's mind. I think encounter... Looking in the, the rearview mirror, per se, of your life's history, what have you been a slave to? Johnny and Susie start off in uh, first grade. Teacher gives them uh, a mad minute. <laughs> Some of you know what I mean. It's like 60 seconds to as many math problems as you can. Susie rocks the thing. I mean, she finishes every problem on the page with enough time to fold her hands and put her pencil down. Like, she killed it. Her teacher comes up to her and gives her such lavish praise. Susie, you did an amazing job, better by far than anyone else in my class. Susie, you've done a a job on this um, worksheet better than any that I have ever seen in my 25 years of teaching. There's a psychological response that Susie has to say, this is good. Susie gets older and older, only it's not um, comments from a teacher or, or a smiley face on a page. It's, it's 100%. It's the letter A on a report card all the way down. Later on, it's degrees. It's letters after her name. It's affirmation from coworkers. There's something that started very early on that Susie looks at and goes, This is me. Heaven forbid I not have an A. Heaven forbid that, that I don't receive affirmation but scolding from a coworker or a boss. She's looking in her rearview mirror and going, I identify myself by that single letter, A. I'll do anything for it. I'll even serve it. Encounter. What are you serving? There's a great Old Testament theologian by the name of Bob Dylan. (laughs) Stick with me. Picking this theme up, he shares with us a song. I just wonder if we can play it here. Words on the screen. You sing along if you'd like. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. 
the song goes on uh, with other verses, might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage, might have money and drugs at your command, women in a cage, you may be a businessman or some high degree thief, they may call you doctor, they may call you thief, you're going to have to serve somebody. Next verse, you may be a state trooper, you might be a young Turk, you may be the head of some big TV network, you may be rich or poor, you may be blind or lame, you may be living in another country under another name. You're going to have to serve somebody. I don't really think that Bob Dylan is a great Old Testament scholar, theologian. However, he's right. There's something fundamental in his music repertoire that realizes that even at the top of the game, you're going to have to serve somebody. Looking in that rearview mirror, we've all got someone or something chasing us down, saying, you belong to me. What's it going to be? The difficult thing, and one that Tim Keller, who we often uh, quote around here, points out to us, is, is, that, is that even this sense of like, hey, no, no, okay. Dylan might have somebody chasing him down. Susie might have something chasing her down. I mean, I know people who've got things chasing them down. But me? Like, I do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want. You don't understand the the level of freedom that I have. Friend, there is nothing holding me back. There's nothing in my rearview mirror chasing me down. Can we cue up some eagles? <laughs> With the words on the screen. Classic. Your pain and your hunger They're driving you home And freedom Oh, freedom, well, that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. Isn't it possible that the eagles are right? As bizarre as it sounds, sitting in the elevator when you've probably heard this song last, or standing rather, uh, hearing those lines, maybe even without thinking about it, but freedom, oh, freedom, is just some people talking. The song, Desperado, is about the fact that there's a guy walking through life, all doing whatever he wants, when he wants, with whomever we want, he wants. Isn't it possible that that, uh, that, that unapologetic, relentless grasp on freedom is exactly what's in his rearview mirror? chasing him down. Last time now, encounter. What's your slave master? What's driving you? What's in that rear view mirror? That's the mirror. That's looking backwards. There's also a windshield looking forward. Let's finish off that uh, story here. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 15, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they'll they'll go in after them, and I'll gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. 
Through his chariots and his horsemen, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front of them and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud broke darkness to one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. Then Pharaoh stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it to dry land. The waters were divided. And the Israel's And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficult driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. When the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Moses, his servant. Rearview mirror looking behind. Windshield looking forward. There's a certain sense in which there's an uncertain uh, future lying ahead. They're not quite sure uh, how God is going to get them out of this jam. In fact, they're, they're complaining and they're reminiscing about the good old days of slavery and saying that's better than what lies ahead. And at one point, I love this line where uh, Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. He answered, you need only to be still. Sometimes we see that and we're like, oh, like words of peace and comfort, assurance from Moses. A literal translation, be quiet, exclamation point. Moses tells the people, you need only to shut your mouths for just a moment and wait there. We've been dropping these breadcrumbs along the way to say like, uh, windshield looking forward. This is why it looks bizarre. They take the wrong way into the desert instead of the highway with all the exits. That's bizarre, to say the least. Not only that, um, terrible, terrible logistics move, guiding this massive group of people right up to the edge of a huge body of water where there's surely no escape. That's bizarre on God's point. Uh, On top of that, the people, we know from verse uh, 13 that they're armored, 
um, that they have. Now, there's chariots, and then there's the Israelite armor, which, you know, this isn't like historical biblical fact, but I just imagine like young guys with cooking pots over their head and sharp sticks. I mean, they, they don't quite have the technology, right? And, and they're ready to go. And Moses says to them, okay, just put the sticks down. You need only to be quiet for just a minute. Uh, bad uh, military move, I would imagine. I mean, all along the way, there's like these bizarre kind of accounts or turns in the story, when, guiding them into a sea so full of, of reeds. Bad move. It's bizarre, Right? I just think about what it's like for us going ahead, looking in the rearview mirror and going, okay, I can identify with Susie. I've got like 100% A's along the report card. I've been in school for right around 32 years. I'm ready to roll now. And no calls come back on the resume. Or I'm a smart guy. I know what I'm doing. Only I have no idea what my major is going to be. I'm 50 years old now, and, and I've got a ton of life experience. I can contribute to a company, but problem, nobody seems to want me. What's behind looks far better than what's ahead. The rearview mirror is preferred over the windshield. In light of this story, couldn't we say that God is intricately moving every piece on the board to exactly line up with something incredible? If they would have done the smart move at any one of these turns, they wouldn't have been in the desert. They would have been in the, in the, in the green grass. You know, they would have been at Applebee's with all the exits. Life would have been fine. Only problem, they wouldn't have found out exactly beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've got to serve someone. And it might as well be the God who parts the sea. God takes every one of these seeming uh, blunders and he points them out to say, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I've got a plan. You're going to have to serve someone. Why not make it the God who parts the sea for you? You're going to have to serve someone. Why not make it a God who finds a way where there is no way? Find a way where there's no way. When we started worship together, we started off with a Galatians 5 passage, New Testament, thousands of years later. Almost nothing to do with this story, except the author picks up on that same language. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't, don't, don't be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Serve someone. Serve Christ. Lying ahead... God doesn't just magically move the waters. It's interesting to me that he uses this wind. I don't know what kind of wind that it would take to part water right down the middle, on the left and on the right, but I, I'm just imagining this like small-scale tornado, some massively powerful wind, and God is asking the people to walk into it. You know, there's skeptics, there's complainers, there's grumblers. These people would call themselves the realists who said, you've got to be kidding me. I'm not going into that. 
And at the same time, there's others who are visionaries, who are big pictures, who are faithful, obedient, trusting, probably idealists, probably romantics. But they're saying, it's going to be fine. We're going to go into this. Either way, whichever side you're on, God makes a way. He saved everyone. He saved the people, not because of the great faith that they had, but simply because they were his people. He saved his people, not because Travis can do so much on his own, but simply by the fact that he belongs to God. You're going to walk into a tornado this week. I don't know what it's going to look like. You might. The water is going to be kind of mushy and muddy, but it's going to be dry enough to walk on. And Christ is going to ask you to follow me. Follow him. We just stand up as we pray together. God, give us the courage this week to walk in your footsteps. God, give us the courage and wisdom this week to not look in the rearview mirror, but in the windshield, looking ahead, looking to where you might be leading us. God, in Christ, give us the strength to follow you well. Amen.